Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 63. It's titled, Alarmist and the Economics of Collapse. Last Saturday morning, Laprille and I were out at the farm. I was watering trees and, and moving in and out, moving hoses, going back in the house. She was looking at Facebook, and she read a post by an acquaintance, an extended family member that said the following. I hope everyone will read this and take it seriously. If you have a 401k, you need to take steps to draw out, protect that money in some way. There are many indicators and financial analysts predicting a financial collapse in September. Please pay attention. Then she lists this article that says, red alert for the last six months of 2015. When I read a post like that, it makes me angry. Not at the person that put it, but at the alarmist that wrote the article about the economic collapse, the red alert that we need to be concerned. I want to dig into that particular warning in today's episode and share with you why alarmists, even though they might be sincere, are so dangerous to our financial health. Also, though, we want to look at the economics of collapse. Is it possible that a financial system or the economy could collapse, not necessarily in the next six months, but at some point in the future? That's today's topic. Before doing that, quick announcement. Today, when the episode is released, is July 1st. I've mentioned in previous episodes that the hub, Money for the Rest of Us hub, will be closing June 30th. I'm going to extend that to today, July 1st, so it will close midnight Eastern time. So if you're listening to this the day the podcast is released, go ahead. If you have an interest in, in the hub, go ahead to uh, go to moneyfortherestofushub.com. Now, it's not going to be closed forever, just for new members for two months to give me a chance to restructure it, to better have a, a better onboarding experience for new members. Now, if you join today or if you join recently, you're going to be able to take advantage of all those new benefits as I introduce them over the next several months. So money for the rest of us hub.com. If you're listening to this after July 1st, you can still go to that same URL, sign up for a list, and I'll notify you when the hub reopens. The other thing, I've had a number uh, of members of the hub, as well as some listeners, ask what what free resources are there out there to evaluate investments? So the valuations of exchange traded funds or market indices or perhaps economic data. And so I want to compile a list of free resources that I can share with you, the listeners. So if you have a particular resource that you like and you use, go ahead and email me jd at jdavidstein.com and I'll put that list together. 
Now, back to this alarmist. And what an alarmist is, it's someone who excites fear and panic in others about an imminent financial or economic collapse. Imminent. And that, that's the key word. Something's going to happen this October or over the next six months. This particular alarmist is named Michael Snyder, and I had never heard of him, as I've not heard of most alarmists, because there's dozens, if not hundreds, out there making specific predictions in order to raise fear. And I'm not saying alarmists aren't sincere. I, In reading what Michael Snyder wrote, he, and, and I hesitated to even put a link to his post, but I'll, I'll, I'll be transparent and I'll put it because we're going to talk about it today. That way you can read it for yourself and make your own decision. But I'm sure he's sincere, but still professional alarmists are not opposed to making money off their fear-mongering by selling products and services such as books, DVDs, and survivalist gear. If you go to the Economic Collapse blog, you'll see that Michael Snyder has a new DVD titled World War Three. Economic Collapse, and the Death of America. Now, that is not a subtle title. That is a title to instill fear, to play and toy on emotions, and to generate actions. He starts his post, as an attorney, I was trained to be level-headed and to only come to conclusions that were warranted by the evidence. So this is not something that I'm doing lightly. Based on information that I've received things that I've been told, and thousands of hours of research that I've gone into the publication of more than 1,300 articles about ongoing economic collapse. His blog started in late 2009, so it's been five years of articles on the pending or the current economic collapse, albeit all during a strong secular bull market and economic recovery. Continuing his quote, Therefore, I have come to the conclusion that a major financial collapse is imminent. Therefore, I am issuing a red alert for the last six months of 2015. My problem with alarmists is they become so vested in their worldview that they suffer from a severe case of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is a term developed by behavioral economists. And it is when individuals often unconsciously seek out and interpret information that confirms their thesis while ignoring or misinterpreting data that disconfirms it. The glass is never half full for alarmists, but it's always perpetually close to shattering. And so they they have a very, they, they cherry pick the data to meet their very, very depressing view of what's going to happen. So let's look at the examples, the evidence that he, that he gave. And, and I'm not going to be able to look at all of them because it, there, were, there was a pretty, pretty long article. But he led with the fact the economy was slowing and close to collapse because the velocity of money was at all-time lows. So let's look at what is velocity of money. It essentially is how quickly... Money is moving through the system, either through transactions. So how, how is that measured? Well, it's measured by taking the measure of economic output, so gross domestic product, and it's divided by something called M2. 
And M2 is a measure of the money supply, and it includes coins, currency, checking accounts, and other demand deposits, and money market accounts. So essentially, cash and cash equivalents is M2. And so that that dollar amount, that value, not just in dollars, but other countries do similar calculations, or they probably don't call it M2, that is divided into the output. And so if you have a smaller amount of money supply and a big GDP, you'll have a high velocity of money. If you have perhaps lower GDP, a larger money supply, you'll have slower velocity. And and his contention is, he says, that the economy has always fallen and gone into a recession when the velocity is down. And that wasn't his exact quote. I thought it had it right here. Oh, it's right here. That is why the velo- here's the quote. That is why the velocity money almost always slows down during a recession. As you can see from the chart below, the velocity money has indeed gone down during every recession since 1960. So he had a chart of velocity money using M2, and I, I, you can go to the go to the post. You can look at the chart, and indeed, the velocity of money goes down during recessions. But if you look closely, the velocity of money goes up and down all the time. It goes down when there's not a recession. And it goes up at times when there is or is not a recession. And so what drives this velocity of money? Well, one, the frequency of transactions. In other words, if consumers are buying more, then that will increase the velocity of money. Or if employers decide to pay their employees every week instead of every other week, that can increase it. There are a number of things that derive it. I believe the primary thing driving the slowing velocity of money is low interest rates. If interest rates are low, if inflation is low, then consumers have less of a need to get rid of of money in the checking account. If interest rates are higher, you don't want money sitting in your checking account or or a very low interest-bearing account. You want to move it into a money market account to potentially earn higher interest. If inflation is much higher, you want to spend that money because you don't want it sitting losing value over time. That influences the velocity of money. The willingness of banks to lend, are banks lending, that will increase it. But the point is there's numerous things that influence. So let's look at this idea when velocity of money slows, the economy tanks. This is a chart compiled by Ned Davis using some data from Haver Analytics. And I won't be able to show you the chart, but I'll give you the data. It shows that when the velocity of money falls year over year, by more than 1.6%. So the velocity is going down. That's a period when Michael Snyder is saying it's always been a recession. The GDP, had nominal GDP, so usually we quote GDP in real terms, so after inflation. But before inflation, nominal GDP, when the velocity of money has fallen more than 1.6%, GDP has risen 6.6%. So we've actually... GDP has actually increased. The economy has expanded when the velocity of money has fallen. When the velocity of money is between, has fallen between negative 1.6 and increased at a 3% annual rate, nominal GDP has increased at 6.9%. So it's also risen. 
And when velocity money has increased by more than 3%, nominal GDP has increased at a 5.1% annual rate. What does that mean? That means there's no connection at all between the velocity of money and the growth of the economy or a recession. It's, it grows whether the velocity of money is going up, whether the velocity of money is going down. There is a very, very low correlation and not really a connection between the velocity of money and the growth of the economy. So we can't say that the velocity of money is slow and we're entering into an economic collapse. I've talked about in earlier episodes about you know, a measure and this is the measure I use on the monthly investment conditions report on, on the hub to get a better sense for where the economy is going, because that does influence investment returns. I use purchaser manager indices, purchasing manager indices, PMI. And when you look at that, and these are monthly surveys done throughout the world, asking purchasing managers or businesses where they think their business is going. And it's, it's, pretty detailed. And this has a very, very high correlation to the direction of the economy. So in the U.S., the latest composite PMI, this would be for June, so this would be manufacturing and services PMI, was 51.8. And historically, that has corresponded to a 3.3% real GDP growth rate. And since 2009, when this economic collapse blog has started, that level of PMI has equated to a 1.9% annual growth rate in the economy. And so there is no evidence that the economy is about to collapse. And you certainly, and he had other data that was not negative. There's always negative data in the economy. There's always positive data. They offset. If you're, if you're suffering from a confirmation bias, You'll only focus on the negative, and that's what he did. The other thing he focused on was valuations. He gave a number of valuation metrics. One of the favorite valuation metrics of Alarmist is something called the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. It was developed by Robert Schiller. Sometimes it's called the CAPE. And what it does is it calculates the value of stocks of an indice. So let's say U.S. stocks. So it has the price of the price of the SP 500 index divided by the earnings over the past 10 years. And sometimes those earnings are adjusted for inflation. Sometimes they're not. The CAPE right now is very, very high. When we look at the valuation of stocks and we look at earnings over the past 10 years, particularly given you have a, a pretty significant recession there, the, the CAPE or the cyclically adjusted PE is above 25 and a half. And it's high. So it's higher than it's been. And his contention was that is a sign of financial collapse is imminent. But here's the thing. There's been four times since 1928 when the CAPE in the U.S. has been above 25.5. 1928, 1996, 2003, and in this most recent cycle, it went above that June 30th, 2014. When did the market crash or fall off or have a significant drawdown after it hit those valuations. Well, in 1928, it was one year later. So certainly it was pretty imminent. I would call it, if, if, you, if you met that valuation and stocks fell off, that was imminent because, the, as you know, in October 29, you had this huge market crash. Black, Black Friday? Black Friday. 
So, 1996, how long did it take for the stock market to fall, quote, crash after it hit that valuation? 55 months, almost five years. 2003, it took 48 months, four years of elevated valuations before the market actually declined. You cannot use cyclically adjusted P.E. ratios to determine a market crash is imminent. Valuation is important. It's important to adjust your risk based on valuation. It's something we do on the hub. But we also look at other indicators. We look at what the economy is doing through the PMI data. But you have to look at market internals, the level of momentum and trends in the market, because that can give you clues of whether risk or higher. Not clues to predict what's going to happen, that the market's going to collapse in the next three months or September, but to be able to just to look at what investment conditions are, and then you can adjust. Alarmists like to make specific predictions because that is what generates alarm and fear and hopefully action by those. And again, I'm not saying they don't believe it. I'm sure they believe it's imminent. But the other problem with alarmists is they suffer from recency bias, which is another behavioral economics term. Recency bias is taking something terrible that happening happened and assuming it's going to happen again. Because it's, when you look at the Great Recession and the near global economic collapse that occurred in 2008, that caused a lot of turmoil. And there's a natural inclination to believe another economic disaster is just around the corner. There's a recency bias. You combine that with confirmation bias, you get alarmists, and you get people believing that, and that's not the way to live your life. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. 
You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Living in constant worry that a financial disaster is imminent is both stressful and exhausting. But here's the thing. Economies, financial markets, countries, and ecosystems do collapse. So what do we look at to, to at least understand the context? All of those things are what are known as complex adaptive systems. Complex adaptive systems are decentralized organization comprised of a wide variety of agents and variables that are all interconnected. And I've talked about this in earlier episodes. But here's something else I haven't really talked about. Complex adaptive systems are hierarchical in that smaller elements within the system come together through their interaction to form larger elements. For example, in an ecosystem, leaves join together with branches to form the crown of a tree. A small collection of trees forms a patch. Patches form stands of trees. Stands of trees comprise a forest. And a forest is part of a landscape that also includes grasslands, lakes, and streams. And at each level of an ecosystem or other complex adaptive system, there is a continual adaptive cycle of growth, conservation, restructuring, and renewal. And you could call restructuring collapse. So you have these adaptive cycles over time. But at each level, you get the smaller levels building up to a bigger level. The, the, the time that it takes, there's a different temporal scale and spatial scale between each level. So if you look at the degree and rapidity of change at the smaller scale, say for the leaves, millions of leaves within a forest die and grow annually. It's happening all the time, this adaptive cycle. But change is much slower at the level of the forest. So the number of trees that die each year is just a small fraction of the number of leaves. It can take several years for a tree to die. Even more rare is an entire forest to die off, even as contagious disturbances such as wildfires and disease. They tend to come. They can wipe out a part of a forest, but it tends to leave some trees unscathed. The same thing works with the economy. At the bottom level, at the level of the employee the level of the family, you always have employees and families losing their job, getting new jobs, filing for bankruptcy. There's a lot of activity that's occurring at that level. But as you go up to the level of the firm or a business or industry, the number of bankruptcies, the restructurings, renewal, there's a lot less than at the level of the family. And the bankruptcy of a city or a state is even more rare. And for a country to default on its debt, such as Greece is considering, it's a very, very rare event. But it does happen. And so these patterns of development that lead to transformation or even the collapse at that top level of the hierarchy, it could take decades or centuries. It moves at a glacial scale. 
And why is that? Because the errors and distress and collapse occur at the smallest local level, where damage is limited. You have all this renewal, this disruption occurring at the bottom levels. Now, those smaller things lead up to larger levels, but because you have so much distress in, in the, the renewal, the adaptive cycle at the bottom levels, this actually leads to slower change at the higher levels. And at the top level of the economy, economies are so dynamic and the errors and the distress so distributed out, it's very rare to get one of these positive feedback loops that we talked about in the last episode that can affect the economy as a whole. Now, there was a, there's an anthropologist named Joseph Tainter. He was a pioneer and is a pioneer in the study of collapse. He, I referred to an article, linked to it in the show notes, Complexity, Problem Solving, and Sustainable Societies. Here's a quote. A society that is more complex has more subgroups and social roles, more networks among groups of individuals, more horizontal and vertical controls, higher flow of information, greater centralization of information, more specialization, and a greater independence of parts. That certainly describes our society. It describes our economy. And here's the thing. Societies become more complex over time. When you look at the number of parts and individuals, subgroups, information today versus 200 years ago, the society is much more complex. And why is that? Because there is benefits to complexity. Greater specialization and complexity lead to more food, leisure, and human creativity. But that greater complexity, so there's benefits, but it also requires greater coordination and there's higher cost to complexity. Continuing his quote, a society, a society, as a society increases in complexity, it expands investment in such things as resource production, information processing, administration, and defense. You need coordination. You need management to coordinate all these parts. The complexity in those investments requires there's a cost. There's a cost in terms of time. There's a cost in terms of energy. Because they need more coordination, there needs to be more time and money and greater expenditure of energy. And energy is key. There's a lot less energy if I grow all my food in my backyard. There's more energy expended, so there's a lot less. There's a lot more energy expended to transport those goods and services from California or from Chile so I can have berries in the wintertime. And so societies can reach a point because they need, because problems arise in complex societies and the greater the complexity, the more challenging the problems. They don't necessarily have simple solutions. Global warming is not a simple problem to solve. To solve it would take huge amount of expenditures of time, of money, and coordination. And societies can reach a point where the marginal benefit of increased complexity declines. So you, you put all these resources to solve a problem or to make an investment to improve things, but the actual benefit is much less. So as more and more investment in greater complexity, often it's funded with debt, 
leads to fewer and fewer benefits, a society can become economically weakened and have insufficient reserves to meet and overcome adversity or crisis. Tainer's quote, diminishing returns make complexity, make complexity less attractive and breed disaffection. As taxes and other costs rise, there are fewer benefits at the local level. More and more people are attracted to the idea of being independent. The society decomposes as people pursue their immediate needs rather than the long-term goals of leadership. That is what makes them vulnerable to collapse. The fact that they become the societies become very, very complex and problems become very, very ingrained and the cost to solve the problems becomes very, very expensive and the benefit of solving them or the benefit you get by making those investments becomes very, very small. You get individuals that are disaffected, that, that want to be independent, that want to be part of society, and that's when you can get collapse. But that is at the highest level, and it occurs very, very, very slowly. The Western Roman Empire is a great example. It hit its pinnacle, its biggest, its broadest reach across all that area in 100 AD. Now, there's debate as to when the collapse actually occurred. But most economists and historians would say it occurred about 300 years later. It took 300 years for the Western Roman Empire to collapse. And why did it collapse? It collapsed because it expanded out so far. And then you had invaders coming in and the cost to support the army and to provide bread subsidies for the populace within the cities became very, very high. The government dis what's what's the word the, the government essentially they had silver coins they had going gold coins particularly the silver coins they stopped putting they put less and less silver in the coins they debased the currency that was the term i'm looking for inflation shot up but it took decades it took centuries economies can collapse societies can collapse but we have to monitor the level of complexity and particularly one measure to look at and Tainter measure, looks at this, you know, it's the energy per capita because, so per person energy use and per person energy supply. You have to look at that. Societies, the more complex a society, the more energy is needed. We are benefiting from compressed energy. We had this huge energy subsidy because of oil and we've had all, all the, we won't create the economics of oil, but the reality is oil's been a, a huge benefit to the growth of society. And so the cost of oil and other energy and to be able to get it to, to support the population, support greater complexity, that's key. The bottom line is economic collapse is not imminent. It's possible that it can happen. And we know the economics of how it happens as complexity increases. But most of the crashes and most of the, most of the distress is occurring at the local level. It doesn't bubble up. It's rare for it to be a positive feedback loop that it can impact everything. It does happen, but you can't make predictions that it's imminent. So we do have long-term entrenched problems. We're going to have to be resourceful to solve them. But there is no evidence at all that a collapse 
is imminent. We shouldn't worry about it, but we should be more long-term thinking. But long-term thinking is a topic for another episode. You can get show notes for this episode, episode 63 at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly. I'm also providing other valuable content. It's been a long time since I read any reviews on the podcast, on the episode. So some quick ones. Jim in Cincy, titled, Wow, five stars. Mr. Stein has a unique way to explain the basics of economy investing, an invaluable resource for independent-minded investors. Sandy Sam Cass, great insight into investing without any hype or sales. Thumbs up, says Holy Satellites. Thanks to JD, I now find myself able to hold conversations with my friends. Excellent podcast. Fabricialsi, simple, concise, informative. This podcast is a wonderful guide to macro view of finance and economics. Clear and concise, says GP Gowan. Love the podcast. I look forward to every episode. Great, says Eric Fye. Great information with practical application to my own financial life. Thanks to all those reviews on iTunes. I do very much appreciate it. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I have not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.